Syria's devastating civil war has raged for over 12 years. It's left, by some estimates, half a million people dead. Three million have been left with disability. Half the country has been forced to flee their homes, including many who are now living in refugee camps in neighboring countries. The economy has collapsed and infrastructure shattered. 70% of the electrical system is damaged, one in three schools is in ruins, and only half the hospitals are still fully working. A decade of war has cost over a trillion dollars. 12 years ago, the Arab League expelled Syria. They accused President Bashar al-Assad of starting the civil war with a bloody crackdown on opponents to his dynastic family rule that turned the mass protest movement into an armed opposition. But now, the regional body has voted to allow Syria to return. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're going to hear from the head of the Arab League about that decision to allow Assad to return to the body. And we'll look at what this means for the region and the conflict. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. The return of Syria is the beginning of a movement, not an end. The direction of the resolution to the crisis in Syria will take time for procedures to be implemented, and it will be gradual. The task of this committee is to follow up on those procedures. That was Arab League Secretary General Ahmed Abulghaith announcing the body's decision to readmit Syria on May 7th. The move has been noted as a significant, albeit symbolic, victory for the isolated Bashar al-Assad's government. It's still under punishing international sanctions with few strong regional allies. But proponents of the move say it's not about rehabilitating Assad's image, forgetting about the war or moving on. Instead, it's about finally putting the Arab region's voice back into the discussion about how to end the conflict. A statement announcing the decision said it was taken to contribute towards ending the suffering of the Syrian people and realising their legitimate future aspirations. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres praised the decision, saying that the region had a vital role to play in helping end the war. The road to readmission has been long for Syria, and not all of the League's members backed the decision. Morocco abstained. Qatar said its stance on re-establishing ties with Damascus hadn't changed. Mr. Abulgaith has made clear that readmitting Syria to the League wouldn't force any country to re-engage with Syria bilaterally. It simply allowed Syria to come back to the League and allowed Mr. Al-Assad or his representatives to attend summits, including one on May 19th. To understand how that decision came about and what this means, we sat down with Mr. Abulgaith. Firstly, the strength of the welcome to Syria's return, and on the extent of which the Syrian government is ready to move in the right direction towards Arab countries, and in tackling the pressing problems within Syria itself. The extraordinary meeting last Sunday was preceded by two very important meetings the Jeddah meeting and the Amman meeting. 
وهي لسه ما تمتش لكن ارسل الخطاب لهم بانهم مدعوين لل يعني لشغل المقعد مره اخرى سبق هذا الاجتماع The Syrian side represented by Faisal al-Mekdad Minister of Foreign Affairs who met and spoke with four Arab ministers وفي هذه الاجتماعات على الاقل بالنسبه لاجتماع عمان حضر Dr. Faisal was asked how the Syrian state will move in the face of its problems and in the face of the Arabs. It was also asked how to establish a good relationship and how to implement decisions in the context over which 11 years have passed in the cause of the dispute and many issues were discussed. I was told by the Jordanian minister, who told me specifically that we spoke to them about such and such issues, including the general political situation around Syria. How would they intend to act on it? On this basis, this committee was established consisting of five members, including Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, the Secretary General, and Lebanon, Lebanon being the immediate neighbor of Syria. The vitality and effectiveness of this committee will also depend on it. Joining me now to talk more about the implications of the move is Ismail Nah, the National's Arab Affairs Editor, who's been covering the story for some time. So, Ismail, how long have these discussions been going on about bringing Syria back to the Arab League? Hi, James. Yeah, I really think that things started to get set in motion following the devastating February 6 earthquake, you know, that wrecked devastation across, you know, areas in Turkey and Syria. That natural disaster, you know, it sparked this sort of Arab outreach to Assad's government when we saw several foreign ministers from Arab countries arrive in Damascus to facilitate with the Assad government the release of, you know, much-anticipated humanitarian aid in reaching both government and rebel-held areas. We saw leaders like, you know, Egypt's uh, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, you know, reach out to Assad with an official phone call, which was marked, you know, for the first time since Assad's isolation uh, in 2011. But all this, I think, to give context, started in 2018 when the UAE led the charge in changing the foreign policy approach when it comes to Syria. In 2018, I sat down with um, who was then the uh, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, um, Anwar Gargash of, of the UAE, who really talked about how it was a mistake for the Arab League to have kicked Syria out. Because in his words, what this did was mean that there was no forum for the region, you know, countries with long historical ties who are feeling the impact of the Syrian conflict um, you know, in, in, in neighboring communities. Um, it left no forum for them to have a dialogue with Assad and, and with um, the opposition about trying to solve this conflict. It left the kind of only forums to be the UN track through Geneva uh, and then later the kind of Russian-sponsored uh, Astana dialogue um, as well. That put, you know, Turkey had a role there with the, with the Russian dialogue and then the uh, international community with the UN. Neither of those dialogues have been hugely successful, but both of them have been kind of at the absence of most of the of the regional states. So he was really talking about how if Syria was still in the Arab League, they would have been able to, you know, have a, a an Arab peace plan. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, five years following that 2018 decision, 
from the UAE. Uh, I think that that train of thought has then been adopted by a lot of countries like Saudi Arabia more recently. And, you know, all that, this all intensified when, re- when regional diplomatic activity really ramped up after we saw, you know, long time regional rivals like Saudi Arabia and Iran agree to resume diplomatic ties. You know, during that same time in March, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal started to hint at an increased engagement with Syria as well, but was still saying that there wasn't an Arab conses- consensus on bringing back the Assad regime to the Arab League. But, you know, he did say that that consensus was building slowly, um, that, you know, that isolating Syria was not working any longer, especially as, you know, we marked 12 years since the war in Syria began, and that dialogue was much needed at the next phase of engagement in the region, and that dialogue had to happen with the Assad regime in Damascus. Yeah, absolutely. And to build on that, I mean, one of the big things that you know, whether that's Anwar Gargash or, or some of the other kind of officials in the UAE, but also you've heard a lot of this from the Saudi officials as well, about the need for the region to take responsibility for its own affairs and for its own stability and security. Um, you know, for, for a long time, you've had, you know, the US as a sort of security guarantor of the region, which, you know, regional states are now saying, well, we don't necessarily need people like the US or the international community to take that active role. This is something that we can also regulate ourselves. So they want the Arab League to be a more active part of that. So, of course, we've talked a bit now about Saudi Arabia and the UAE being a kind of driving force here. But what was kind of the broader conversation and the broader kind of consensus that was being built about a kind of Arab stance towards readmission of of the Assad government? I think we've seen signs, you know, with Saudi Prince Faisal bin Farhan, the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, trying to make trips, you know, to to several other countries to build consensus ahead of the May 19th uh, Arab League summit that Saudi Arabia will be hosting in Jeddah. He kept saying that, you know, consensus was not reached, but I think the thinking was if we can get a majority of these countries on the table to say that, you know, we can welcome Assad back and then talk about the logistics and what that means later on. Uh, two big countries that stand out, obviously, was Qatar and Kuwait. You know, Qatar has said that its position on the Assad government remained unchanged. Qatar said it wouldn't become an obstacle to any negotiations or deal uh, in bringing back the Assad government. And I think that same thinking was also with Kuwait, which, you know, and since 2011 has played a major role in trying to 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 be this mediator. It's held humanitarian conferences, uh, donor conferences for, for Syria. It's trying to remain the sort of like, you know, Switzerland of the Gulf when it comes to the Syrian and violence. So it doesn't want to take one side of the opposition or with, with the government. So trying to convince Kuwait and Qatar has been a major political feat, I think, for the Saudis for the past two or three weeks. That all culminated on May 7th when, you know, Saudi Prince Faisal and four or five, I think, other foreign ministers agreed to bring back the Assad regime. I don't think consensus was agreed that, you know, it was unanimous, but the decision to bring back Assad and invite him to the Jeddah summit was was agreed upon. Yeah, I mean, I, it certainly looks from some of the statements that they're broadly in agreement that there needs to be a kind of discussion here and, and some states are more reluctant to welcome Assad back, but they're saying that they wouldn't stand in the way of a kind of a regional um, you know, agreement and so that they're wel- you know, they'd welcome them back in that sense. And then others are sort of saying we need them back in order to have these discussions. So it seems that they're all coming at this from a similar position, but slightly different places, I guess. And in terms of this agreement on May 7th, were there conditions placed? I mean, that seems to be a big thing, you know, Kuwait talking about, you know, what are the conditions here? What's the logistics of this re-admission? 
You know, while the return of Serie seat on the Arab League, you know, it wasn't hinged on any specific preconditions or even solid conditions following, you know, the reconciliation. The final statement that was released following the foreign ministerial meeting uh, at the Arab League uh, did confirm that the May 7th decisions set Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Lebanon, Egypt, and, you know, the Arab League Secretary General would form this ministerial contact group, a committee group of sort, to liaise with the Syrian government and seek a step-by-step solutions to the crisis. Um, I think practical steps were discussed, and as we saw in the final agreement, that includes you know, the efforts to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid in, in Syria. They also called for like a political resolution to the crisis resulting from the country's civil war. What that means, we don't know yet, but you know, talk of the UN Resolution 2254 is still central to those uh, negotiations for moving forward. And I think Ahmed Abulghait, the Secretary General, did confirm this to us during an interview with the National. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've heard reports that, you know, uh, AFP, the uh, French news agency, were, were claiming that there was sort of financial dealings here between the Syrian and the Saudi government. We've seen other claims about this. You know, Abulghait has, has denied that. He's saying that this is, you know, there are no conditions set yet. I mean, what was the sense when you sat with him about the thinking behind this and, and the sort of next steps? You know, James, during our interview with Ahmed Abulghait, the sense that I got from him was that, you know, we've given the opportunity for the Western powers, be it the UN, the US and the Europeans, to find a solution to the Syrian crisis. But one thing that he did reiterate was that he was against this whole notion that they were the only ones who could sponsor any such agreement with the Syrian government or with the Syrian opposition and leave out the Arabs out in the process. And I think that thinking now has changed so much. So in the past, you know, three, three months, four months, where countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, even Iran, to a certain extent, saying that, you know, we have to sit amongst each other and discuss what the region will look like in the next five, six, seven years. And that includes a major thing when it comes to the Syrian crisis, especially when it comes to refugees, the political solution there, the, the use of proxy groups in Iran. And I think Ahmed Abulghait, did say that, you know, they're not against any political framework when it comes to the UN Resolution 2254, which sets out like you know, a roadmap for the future of Syria, whether Assad is included or not. But that cannot be at the expense of any Arab participation in that process. So we also spoke with Mohammed Baharoun, the director general of the Dubai Public Policy Research Center, uh, who laid out some of the thinking from the Saudi and the UAE side and, and that Gulf thinking uh, about bringing Syria back to the Arab fold? I don't think the uh, motivation now has changed from the motivation before. There is the overall regional uh, strategy of deconflicting in the whole region. Uh, the understanding is that deconflicting will lead to more stability, more stability would lead to more state-to-state type of relationship. So the whole uh, agenda with uh, Syria is the regaining the the Syrian statehood in the same way the engagement with Iraq was about regaining Iraqi statehood. And I think this is a strategy that we have seen before. This is not new. And I think it is consistent with uh, other areas, including Sudan before uh, and now in Yemen. And also it applies to the strategy towards uh, Iran, which is returning back to -to state-to-state relationship where exchange uh, between states is the main modus operandi. It's not the non-state actors. 
Uh, so in my views, it didn't change. Maybe it got a bigger boost now than it had before. More countries now realizing what needs to be done to address issues that have got long-term impact, including the issues of, the issues of refugees, including the issues of uh, non-resolved ISIS presence in, in Syria. And of course, the recent one, which is the production and trafficking of narcotics. Critics of the decision are also saying that the admission of the regime allows it to escape accountability or to uh, have won the war. Is that a fair assessment? This idea of winning or losing is based on this zero-sum calculus. So you measure things, whether you have achieved something out of it or not achieved anything. Are you still in the same place or not the same place? We're talking about the state. It cannot be measured by the you know lifespan of an individual leader. These are systems, these are uh, bureaucracies, these are relations that need to be re- restored. The longer we wait, hoping that one leader or another would move away, the longer these things would, would become uh, difficult to regain in the future. So uh, I am not in favor of calculating this by uh, whether uh, a specific person is there, did he win, did he lose. I think uh, the focus, uh, particularly from the UAE, has been on the Syrian people. And when you look at the Syrian people, you look at all of the people, what is what are they lacking right now? They're lacking connection with everyone. Uh, you cannot really go and rebuild the school or build a new school. You cannot really go and build a hospital there. Because of that disconnect. And uh, the further that disconnect happens, the further the disintegration between the different parts of, of Syria becomes uh, deeply rooted. Uh, there are generations of people who do not know the world as we've known it because they were born in a refugee camp. They did not get proper uh, education. Uh, they did not get proper interaction with the world. And what is the impact of that generation on the future of Syria, but also on the future of the region? Uh, all of these questions are not being really dealt with. What people are dealing with is that, are we rewarding Bashar or we're not rewarding Bashar? And I think that's a wrong way of, of addressing it. So let's bring back Ismail now. So you're planning to attend the Arab League summit on May 19th. Uh, what do you think we can expect from that? What will we see? Will Bashar al-Assad himself attend? What do we know about what will happen at the uh, summit? Yeah, so for now, the Arab League uh, chief, Ahmed Abul Ghait, he did confirm that the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, may attend the upcoming summit in Jeddah if he wishes to. He said that when you know invitations are formally sent by the host country, that being Saudi Arabia this year, uh, that if he wishes to participate, he will do so. And we did see informal invitation from King Salman uh, to the Syrian president via the Saudi ambassador to Jordan, who arrived in Damascus and formally physically gave that invitation to Bashar al-Assad. The optics of what we saw of that invitation being carried out does signify that you know Bashar al-Assad is willing to attend and face his peers at the Arab League in Jeddah. Our editor-in-chief, Mina al-Arabi, and I, you know, we did interview Ahmed Abu Ghayt in Abu Dhabi, and we asked him what the agenda, what the priority list of this upcoming Arab League summit may be. He did confirm that you know discussions are still ongoing on what that agenda may look like, what it will compromise off, because he talked about you know these leagues summits happen annually every year. Obviously, Sudan is a big um, talking point. Uh, I, I'm not sure we will find any political resolution to that conflict at the Arab League in Jeddah. Uh, Syria, certainly, if Bashar al-Assad is going to be present at the summit. Uh, but he did confirm that you know he has a lot of enthusiasm for this year's summit 
And I think when you compare it to last year when Algeria hosted the, uh, the summit, more of senior leadership, be it the presidents, be it the kings, will be attending this uh, summit in Jeddah. Just coming back to this idea of will he attend in person, you know, Bashar al-Assad has been fairly isolated and hasn't done a lot of international travel since 2011. Certainly, yeah. If you think about since 2011, you know, he stayed put in Damascus except for like occasional visits to very close allies. But in this year alone, he visited the UAE, Oman. Recently, he was in Iran and Russia. And for him now to possibly arrive and land in Jeddah, where he will be greeted by King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, will be a huge political moment for, for the Assad government and for Damascus and the Middle East in terms of their relationship. You know, he's not just attending a bilateral visit with the Saudis. He's meeting his peers who he hasn't had much contact with over the past you know, 12 years. And that being in Jeddah and Saudi Arabia is a huge moment, given that they are a powerhouse player in the region. So, 12 years after it was expelled from the Arab League, Syria is back. Officials insist this is about creating new space to hold talks, one led by Arab states, that will help bring the region a step closer to managing its own affairs and stability. But it also risks appearing like Mr. al-Assad, a man accused of war crimes, is being welcomed back to the international community without accountability. Either way, the decision is a major step for Syria, for the Middle East and for regional stability. The extent to which the Arab League can now play a role in a lasting solution to the conflict is unclear. But the UAE and Saudi Arabia are certainly hoping that inviting Mr. al-Assad to a regional forum for discussion is better than having no discussion at all. Thanks this week to Arab League Secretary General Ahmed Abulgaith, Mohammed Bahroun from the Dubai Public Policy Center, and the Nationals Ismail Nama. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. I'm James Haynes-Young, and if you want to get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out, then just hit subscribe in your podcast app. And if you can leave us a rating and a review while you're there, it makes all the difference.